Well, good morning, everyone. It sure is good to see you. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 16, uh, you will have our first uh, passage ready here in just a moment. Uh, I was kind of busy when I came in, so I didn't get to talk to a lot of you to start with, but some of you, of course, I have been with before. And uh, I just have to say at the very beginning here that Northfield Boulevard is one of my favorite places to come. Uh, there are places where for some reason you just feel more comfortable. You just feel right at home. And, and for some reason, this place is one of those places for me. And uh, I've had a lot of good memories in the, in the times that I've been here. I think the very first time I came, some of the young uh, men in the congregation, young college students said, uh, hey, would you like to play a little basketball this week? And I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to do a little bit of that. And so uh, one uh, night they took me over to some apartment complex where they had a pretty good place to play basketball. And uh, I got after it pretty good. I tried to be careful that I didn't land on anybody's uh, ankle because I've, I've had to preach too many times on crutches. But uh, I made it through that whole thing, and uh, about 10 o'clock at night, we finally stopped, and I'm walking away, and I'm feeling so good because I, I had managed to hang in there with those young men, and I, I just thought, wow, this is great. I feel like I could play some more. And then the next morning, I woke up, and absolutely, this is, you know, people say this, but this is no exaggeration, I literally could not get out of bed. It was horrible. Uh, but I appreciated so very much uh, them taking time with me and just beginning to do that, and, and that was a great and wonderful thing. Uh, several different topics this week uh, on the flyer. Those topics are right through Monday night. After that, we made a little mistake. Uh, but everything that's on there is going to be preached except the lesson on unconditional obedience. But we'll be letting you know the order of those. But everything is exactly like the flyer says uh, through Monday night, and then we'll let you know from there. Good to see everybody who is here this morning. If you're like me and you have children, maybe they are grown now, maybe they're not. But somewhere along the way, uh, you've probably done this very thing. Maybe they're getting ready to go out uh, with friends for the night. Uh, maybe they're leaving to go away from home for a good long while. And uh, you say to them as they're on their way out the door, remember who you are. And when we say that, we're trying to say, you know what you've been taught. You know who you are. You know what your principles are. Stay true to, to them. Don't, don't violate them. Don't go against who you are. Remember who you are. And I want to tell you, that's, that's good. And that stays with you. It always did with me. But churches of Christ need to do that too. Back where I preach normally at Oakland and here at Northfield Boulevard and all over the place, uh, places that are churches of Christ always need to remember who they are. For over 2,000 years now, there have been things that we have taught. There have been things that we have held to that make us distinctive. And they are things that make us different from what a whole lot of people are accustomed to. And those things absolutely cannot be compromised. We have to hold on to them. We have to remember who we are. We have to be careful not to drift you may notice on the screen here, this is talking about the danger of drifting, and it's covered up, but right there in the back, if you could see it very well, there's a sign right there that says, Dangerous Waters. And so the warning is, don't get too close. Evidently, someone had already done that, because here is a rescue team. Somebody perhaps was in some kind of vessel, and they didn't pay attention, and they got to drifting, and they got further and further down the, down the stream, until finally they are in some major trouble. Why? Because 
they were drifting. Let me talk to you about some of those distinctive doctrinal matters that have been ours to preach and teach for a long time now. First of all, there is the matter of the plan of salvation. You know it like the back of your hand. We tell people that you must hear the Word of God. You must believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You must be willing to repent of your sins. Confess with your mouth your belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And then be baptized to have all your sins washed away. That's what the Bible teaches that a person must do to be saved. But yet sometimes I hear people talk about that, those things as though that's just some kind of uh, formula that we just kind of dreamed up some, some kind of way. This hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Is that so? Did we just make that up? Well, let me consider a few passages with you. Turn to Mark the 16th chapter in verse 15 and 16. And notice that Jesus, among his last words before he left this earth, was standing with his disciples, and he told them what to go and to teach. Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. Go ye into all the world, Jesus says. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Well, we've got two of them right there, don't we? Very plain from the mouth of Jesus. You must believe and you must be baptized. It's very interesting that what you see in the book of Acts follows perfectly what Jesus said to teach. The apostles did not veer from that in one single way. Let me show you some more passages here. Turn to Acts the 8th chapter and notice what it says in verse 6. Acts the 8th chapter beginning in verse 6. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 6... Philip has gone to the city of Samaria. The gospel has come to Samaria. And in verse 6 of Acts chapter 8, it says, The multitudes with one accord heeded the things that were spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. All right, so they heard, didn't they? Look in verse 12. It says, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. All right, so they heard. <laughs> it says, when they believed, both men and women were baptized. So we've got here, believe, and be baptized. We've got three of them right there, don't we? Look at what it says in the next verse concerning Simon. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. He did the same thing. He heard, he believed, and was baptized. We have three of them in those verses. Look at Acts chapter 18 now and verse 8. Here is one single passage that has three of them in that passage. Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. Here in the city of Corinth it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. I want to tell you, that's getting pretty close, isn't it? That's three of the five right there. Hearing, believed, and were baptized. Are we making this stuff up? Well, let's look at something else now. What about these other two? We've got hear, believe, and be baptized. Did we just pull repent and confess out of a hat or something? You know, the Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse 160 that the sum of thy word is truth. And what that really means is that we have to continue to look at all of the Word of God. And when you, have, when you pull it all together, then you have the sum. The sum of thy word is truth. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to see four of them now in Acts chapter 2. 
And again, this is shortly after Jesus had given his message of what they were to teach. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is hammering down to those who had crucified the Son of God. And in verse 36 beginning, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Can you imagine? That hit them like a ton of bricks. All their life they had heard about the Messiah. Their mothers had taught them about the Messiah. There was great talk about the Messiah coming. Can you imagine how it felt in one moment when you realized, Oh my, we crucified the Messiah. There could be no, you talk about a panic attack. <laughs> that moment calls for that. But the next verse says that when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. When they heard that. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 40. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added unto them. All right, what do we see there, folks? They heard about the Christ. They were cut to their heart, indicating that they believed. They then asked, what shall we do? And by the way, Peter didn't say, oh, you've already done all you have to do. I see that you believe. No, they said, what shall we do? And he told them something to do. They heard, they believed, they asked, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. There's four of them. Four of them. Well, what about this matter of confession? Well, the Bible makes it very plain in Matthew the 10th chapter in verse 32 and 33 that we absolutely must confess Jesus. Romans says that with the mouth uh, confession is made unto salvation. Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, uh, he was told, if you believe with all your heart you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But in Matthew the 10th chapter in verse 32 and 33, Jesus says... Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's all of them. We didn't make that up. Here, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. That's Bible. That's Bible. That's what that is. And when you look at the book of Acts, you'll find that in an incredible kind of way, in most every single situation, the thing that is mentioned in, 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 in almost every one of them. It, some of the others may have been left off or not mentioned, but baptism is mentioned over and over and over and over again in these uh, texts as to how one was saved. And I'll just tell you, that's distinctive. That is distinctive preaching today. Is something that people are not very much accustomed to because the most common thing that you'll hear today is uh, just accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And uh, sometimes it is said you just need to pray this prayer. You pray what is referred to as the sinner's prayer. And yet if you look through the Bible, you will never find anywhere in the Bible when somebody asked the question, what must I do to be saved, where they were ever told, just pray this prayer. It's just not there. It is not there. 
But yet that is the thing that is taught so prevalent in the world today. And so that's going to make us kind of rare birds when we teach what the Bible has to teach on what to do to be saved. And so that is the first of these distinctive things, and that is what we teach concerning the plan of salvation. Then there is the matter of teaching people that the Lord just has one church. What we mean by that is that there's just one body of people that belong to the Lord, that become His when they obey that gospel, when they obey that plan of salvation, they're added to that one church that Jesus has. And we're teaching people that the Lord doesn't have multiple churches. The Lord just has one church, and every saved person is added to that one church. You know Matthew 16 and verse 18. What did Jesus tell Peter? In Matthew the 16th chapter and verse 18, Peter had just made that great confession that Jesus was the Christ. And Peter was told by the Lord, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, Upon this rock. And the idea there is, Upon the foundational statement that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Says a whole lot. Who's it going to belong to? It's going to belong to Jesus. Who's going to build it? Jesus is going to build it. How many is he going to build? One. I will build my church. You know, I've had a number of Bible studies with people. And uh, we go to Acts chapter 2, that text that we were at a moment ago. And it talks about what those people uh, had done to them when they obeyed the gospel. Acts 2 and verse 47, as the gospel continued to be preached... Acts 2 and verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. A lot of times when I'm studying with people, I'll talk about that. That The Bible says here that when these people obeyed the gospel, it was the Lord himself who added them to the church. And I'll ask them, what church did he add them to? You know, I have never had anybody miss that question. Never, never has anyone given the wrong answer. You know, they may say something, well, well, he added them to his church. Or they may say uh, uh, they were added to the Lord's church. Or they were added to the church belonging to Christ. Or, but I've never had anybody to say, well, they were, you know, they, they were added to the Presbyterian church. People seem to get it when they read their Bible that Jesus has a church and uh, every saved person is added to that church. He's able to put them all in one, gather them together in one. There'll be one flock, one shepherd. And so that's distinctive, one church. And what that also furthermore tells us is that in the New Testament, there were, there were no denominations. You just don't read about them. There were no denominations in the New Testament. They did not exist then, and they should not exist today. And what I mean by this is that here's Peter, and here's Paul, and here's Lydia. And it's, it's not that Peter was Baptist, and Paul was uh, Methodist, and Lydia was Presbyterian, or, or whatever you want to put in there. They weren't members of different denominations. They had all obeyed that plan of salvation they were added by Jesus to his church, and they were not part of any denominational system. Denominationalism didn't come along until much later. And it, again, should not exist today. It's divisive in its nature. 
Sometimes you'll have some groups that'll get together. I remember one time I went to a place and, and they said, we're going to break down the walls of denominationalism tonight. And they wanted us all to come up on a stage and just hold hands. I could tell you more about that. But anyway, they wanted us to all come up on stage and hold hands. I, I didn't do that. But what my point is, is that if we had all gotten up there and held hands, you know what we would have had? We would have had union. But we would not have had unity. You can hold hands and, and just kind of have the warm fuzzies for a little while. And you've got some union because we're all holding hands. But just as soon as we walk away from that building, this group continues to teach this, and this group continues to teach that, and this group continues to teach that. We had some nice union for a little while, but we don't have unity. Denominationalism by its very nature is divisive in nature. And I'll tell you, Jesus made a strong statement. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, in verse 13, when he said, Every plant, Jesus said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Sometimes you'll go out into your flower garden in the, right there around the front of your house and you'll see some things that have come up and they don't belong there. You don't want it there. It doesn't belong. It's not what you intended. And you go out there and you grab a hold of it and you pull it up by the roots and you cast it aside. The Bible says that's what the Lord is going to do one day. Every plant, every establishment, every church that has not been planted by the Lord, the Bible says one day it will be rooted up. That's a strong, strong message. And I used to hear that a lot in our preaching and teaching. And so we are distinctive in that. And then there's the matter of singing without instruments. I suppose if you were to ask what is the one thing that people notice almost right away that is different about us from what they are accustomed to, they would say, I, I notice that uh, you don't have any instruments. Well, there is one. And it is the human heart. You're familiar with Ephesians 5 and verse 19 that says that we are to sing and make melody in our hearts unto the Lord. And that's what we do. And that is simply what we do. Every single passage in the New Testament showing how the New Testament church worship shows that they sang and they made melody in their heart. Instruments of music are noticeably absent from the New Testament. And what that means is because they are noticeably absent from our New Testament, they are without authority. They're not authorized by God. And then there's the matter of not having any social or recreational gimmicks. Uh, people might notice you don't have a fellowship hall. Well, the first thing I would say, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Uh, you're sitting in it, <laughs> and uh, pretty soon we're going to share in a fellowship meal. Communion in 1 Corinthians 10 is the Greek word fellowship. We have fellowship, communion with one another. This is our fellowship hall. All of us sharing what we have in Jesus Christ and sharing in this meal that we will soon have. But there is nothing provided for social meals there's nothing provided recreationally by the church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me, where the Apostle Paul hammered down on what he was going to present to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. This is what Paul says I'm focused on. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what Paul is saying here is what I preach is the message of the cross. Look at what he continues to say, coming on down to verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see what God's about? God's about a message that is preached to the hearts and lives of men. He says, verse 22, the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. There's just a passage that says a lot of people won't have it. A lot of people stumble all over it. But we will not abandon it. We preach Christ and him crucified. In verse 25, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. Verse 24 says we preach Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what we do. <laughs> we're, we're just all about preaching and teaching people. It's what we must always stay centered on in, in everything that we do. A lot of churches today, though, the very first thing that they think about is, is how can we draw people through social and recreational things? It's, a, it's amazing just how much further and further and further people are going trying to outdo the church across town and see if we can't do something a little crazier and wilder than they did. In an effort to draw people, to draw people, to get people in. And I want to tell you, once you jump on that, it's hard to get off. I had a preacher friend one time that was talking to a fellow who had been in a denomination for many, many years, an older man. And uh, they got to talking about these kinds of things. And somewhere in there, the older man finally said, he said, I wish we had never gotten into that. But the problem is, so many times you don't know how to hop off. When you have built a monstrosity of a place that is full of recreational stuff, and you start saying, now listen, from now on, all we're going to do is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you suffer mass losses, now you can't pay for all that stuff. And it kind of gets into a little trap where you, you, really, you really know you ought to hop off, but you don't know how to hop off. Of course, the way you hop off is just hop off and let it fall where it falls. But a lot of times people are trapped in that, and they recognize a lot of the difficulties with it. I used to hear the old-time preachers say, if we draw people with tea and ice cream and chicken, don't be surprised if a lot of them are as weak as the tea as cold as the ice cream and as dead as the chicken. And, and true, if that's all they're getting, then that's what you're going to have. Our strength comes from cutting our teeth on the Word of God. And that is where God says that we are to focus. And then quickly I'll just say something about this matter of no human institutions. And... What I mean by that is that there's no authority for the church to take from its treasury to build a human institution. Uh, years ago, it started off by people talking about uh, all the, the local churches need to send all this money to the colleges. And hardly anybody was buying it to start with. You mean we're going to send money to a college? <laughs> and uh, it was hard to sell. 
People just couldn't see that. But then along came the orphan home issue, and now you had something that you didn't have with the college. Now you've got an emotional issue. Who's going to take care of these kids? What are we going to do about the kids? And all of a sudden you had a strong emotional appeal. Not that there's not a way to take care of kids biblically in the right kind of way. But all of a sudden you had heartstrings now. And people have said, oh yes, we need to funnel our money to the orphan home. Well, once you've got the orphan home, which is a human institution, you can take the college. They both go together. They're both human institutions being funded by the local church. Let me just say off the cuff that in Limestone County, Alabama, I oftentimes refer to that, you know, if there's such a thing as the Bible Belt, or you might say as far as even churches of Christ, Limestone County is kind of a buckle. I think we have about 50 uh, churches of Christ or so in our area. Most of them are of a conservative strand. And uh, most of them have held to these kinds of things very strongly for a long time. And I'll have more to say about that here in just a moment. And then we also taught that we must not do anything without biblical authority. In Colossians 3 and verse 17, that verse we've quoted so many times, it's the song that we sing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. So everything you say, everything you do must be done in the name of the Lord. And that does not mean that you just say Jesus' name over it and that makes it all right. When the Bible talks about doing something in the name of the Lord, it means to do something by His authority. I noticed an authority figure out in the parking lot when I drove up this morning. I suppose that might have been just a little bump or fender bender or something or another. But every once in a while, those guys will come to your house and they'll say, Open up in the name of the law. Well, when they said in the name of, they mean that there's an authority here that says that you must open this door. And so when the Bible says to do something by the authority of Jesus, it means to do all With him giving the go-ahead. I like to say it this way. If Jesus gives the go-ahead, go ahead. But if Jesus doesn't give the go-ahead, then whoa. Hold up. Hold up. So here are some things that have been core. They have been distinctive. They are things that we have preached. And things that we have taught for years and years and years. Because we find it to be in the Bible. It's who we are. It's where we've been. Since the Lord established His church. It's kind of old stuff. And nowadays, if there's anything people don't like, it's something old. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. Evidently, this is not a new problem. God's people were drifting more and more and more from where they needed to be. And in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, it says... Jeremiah 6 and verse 16, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Ask for the old paths. I like what he says next. Ask for the old paths where the good way is. The good way is the old stuff. Ask for the old paths where the good way is. And walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But notice it said, they said, we will not walk in it. God's pleading, come back to the old paths. It's the good way. No, sir, we will not. 
And that's happening all across the board. More and more churches of Christ are, are sliding. And some of it's almost a landslide in, in the direction in which they are headed. In the time that I have left, I may have to move with some good speed. But I want to talk about the danger of drifting away from distinctive teaching. The Bible teaches that what we got, we've got to do is we've got to drop anchor and refuse to move. Hebrews, the second chapter and verse 1 Hebrews, the second chapter and verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Some versions say we must give the more earnest heed, lest at any time we let them slip. But here's the idea. Get in there, hold on to it lest you drift away. And that's what happens. Churches don't just go from being rock solid to the next day they're just gone. It doesn't happen that way. They drift. And sometimes it's in such a slow increment that people can't see the drift. We'll talk more about that here as we go along. Let me show you what can happen and what has happened in too many places. The first phase that I want to begin with is what I call spoken understanding. And what I mean by that is there was a time when churches of Christ understood these things and they spoke these things and spoke them unashamedly and spoke them often. It's like the Apostle Paul once said in the book of Corinthians. He says, as it has been said... I believed, therefore I have spoken. Paul says, therefore we believe and therefore we speak. Let me tell you what we ought to do. First of all, we ought to find out what what we believe. And after we find out what we believe, we ought to speak it. That's exactly what we ought to do. And that's where churches of Christ were. And I tell you, that's surely where they were in the time that I grew up in. When I grew up, you heard a lot of sermons on that stuff right there. When there was a gospel meeting that was going to be held, you can rest assured you were going to hear that stuff in gospel meetings. I was steeped in it. And I'll just say that I think that was a good thing. I grew up knowing who I was. I grew up knowing... Knowing. (laughs) I grew up knowing who we were. I grew up knowing... Where we were to stand in everything. And I knew how different I was. I mean, I was a rare bird, odd, from a whole lot of stuff that was around me. You know, it's hard, I think, for preachers. We've got to remember that some lessons need to be preached, even if they're already understood. I need to make quick order of this one. But Peter says in Second Peter 1... As he's getting old. He says I'm about to die. And I want to be sure that I preach these things to you. Before I die. As long as I'm in this tent. I want to remind you of some things. I've noticed that when preachers get older. They start doing that more. They want to make sure that people understand. And they start going back. And laying down some foundational things. I want to make sure that you have a reminder of these things. Even though you already know them. I think sometimes there's a temptation for a preacher to want to preach something that he thinks is kind of novel, you know. 
And Peter says, no, I'm going to spend some time on some stuff that you already know. And I'll tell you something else. The lesson that you preached four years ago, the 12-year-old did not understand it. It needs to be preached again because now they're 16. And so preachers need to remember that even though it seems like I preached on that not long ago, well, you got different age groups and you got to kind of keep that in mind. We'll, we'll say more of that here in just a second. Every local church needs spoken understanding. But then it seems like we slipped into a time of unspoken understanding. Listen to me carefully. What I mean by that is we still understood all of these things very well. We understood all those things that I started the lesson with. But we went through a phase where we just weren't talking it as much. We just weren't saying it as much. I think that was sort of the climate when I first began preaching full time. There may have been some reasons for that. It may have been that we didn't want to offend people. Maybe sometimes some of those things were preached and said in such a way there was no tact in it. The way we said it, it was just kind of like, open your mouth, I'm going to give you this medicine whether you like it or not. And people were turned off because of the way we were doing that. Maybe that was it. We didn't want to offend people and some people were getting offended. So, oh, we all know that anyway and so we don't have to talk about it as much. Maybe we saw a desire to, or a need maybe, to move on to some other things. I want to tell you something. If you preach that stuff at the first of the lesson all the time and you don't preach anything else, it'll kill a church. Because they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know how much he loves them. They don't know what was really happening at the cross. They don't know how they're to live every day. They don't know how they're there to serve God. They don't know how to go about and help their neighbor. They don't know any of that stuff because you stay on doctrinal stuff all the time. It'll kill a church if that's all you ever preach. There's a need to get beyond doctrinal things. Turn to Hebrews 5 quickly. Hebrews chapter 5. Paul talks about how the brethren there had not grown. It was their own fault. He said, you need somebody to teach you again. But then when he comes to chapter 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and the doctrine of baptism and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those are core things, but he says that there's times when we need to move on to some other things. And I'll just say that that's where I have been a long time in my preaching. In my preaching, I want to make sure that people get excited about God's plan. And they are excited about God wanting to transform them into little replicas of Christ. And they want to get out in the world and want to make a difference and turn away from the garbage heap and go to heaven when it's all said and done. I want to preach that as hard as I can preach it. But in my office, I've had these things written, doctrinal. Jeff, if these lessons are not preached, members will not know who they are and they will not know where to stand. The congregation will have a dangerous mix of people. I want to make sure you understand that. 
If you don't preach these things, you'll have folks coming in and they've never heard it. It's not preached on. They didn't let go of their old beliefs, but they're right in here with you. And there'll be a dangerous mix of people who don't know who they are. They don't know where they're to stand. And I want to tell you, most of the time, you know what's going to happen with that? It's going to blow. And so there must be doctrinal lessons. But then this. Christian living lessons. Oh, that's wonderful. Jeff, if these lessons, these lessons must be preached if members are to be happy and encouraged in the living of holy lives. And some of these, too, must be challenging. Some of that Christian living stuff is challenging stuff as well. Modest apparel. That's, that's how you live every day. Everybody does that every day. Some of those lessons, too, are challenging at times. But let me ask this question. What is happening? What is happening while we understand these things, but we're not speaking it? What's happening? I'll tell you something dangerous is happening. What's happening is that you've got a whole new generation of people who have never heard it. All the older folks know it. All the older folks know it, but they're not speaking it. And now you've got a whole bunch of folks that don't. A lot of children that don't. And slowly the local church is not understanding it either. In fact, there's an old timer who said a while back about Limestone County, where I'm from, and I do not debate it. He said there are a lot of conservative churches in Limestone County. But they don't know why. They know that's what they are, but they don't know why. And that is a dangerous place to be. Then the next phase, and again, I'm moving quick now. <laughs> is unspoken misunderstanding. Do you understand what we have now? We're still not speaking, but now we have misunderstanding. We haven't spoken in so long that now we have total misunderstanding. Look at where we started. At one time we spoke and we understood. Now we don't speak and we don't understand. See, how, see the drift? See how bad that is? And God wants us to make sure that we teach these things to our children. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, your children are going to come up to you and they're going to ask you, why do we do these things? And Moses says, you tell them. You tell them why you do the things that you do. Again, that's in Deuteronomy 6, uh, beginning in verse 20 and continuing on down through that while. It's important. Because, listen, if you haven't preached on these things in so many years, your children are going to mistakenly think that it just doesn't matter. And what you'll end up having is people saying, well, I don't see anything wrong with... And they're speaking the truth. I don't see anything wrong. They don't see anything wrong. Because it hasn't been taught. It hasn't been studied. They haven't studied very much. And so I don't see anything wrong with it. In Hosea, the 8th chapter, in verse 12. Hosea, the 8th chapter, in verse 12. God says that he had written for his people the great things of his law. This is how it got in the Old Testament. I have written to them the great things of my law. But Amos 8 and verse 12. Or excuse me, Hosea 8 and verse 12. I keep saying Amos, I mean Hosea. Hosea 8 and verse 12. Simply says, I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. God said, I wrote it down, I gave it to them, but they, they look at it now like, strange, strange. Now, 
And these verses talk about how the prophets would prophesy things that were wrong. And he said, my people love to have it so. They know they're not telling them the truth, but it just makes me feel better. I like that. That's where God's people got. And then last of all, there is spoken misunderstanding. Having drifted all of this way, there's a people who will rise up. And they are now very bold in speaking their misunderstandings. They will hold hands with denominations. They will see no problem with instrumental music. They will deny that you have to be baptized to be saved. And they will ridicule the principles of Bible authority. I normally don't do this much in my preaching, but because he decided to be so public about it, I thought I might too. Max Licato, years ago, led the way in a large way in that regard. I've got a piece here that's from Baptist Press. So this comes from uh, Baptist Press. But they interviewed Licato, and it says, Max Licato transcends Church of Christ beliefs says here in one paragraph, Lakato's church is Church of Christ, but not a typical Church of Christ. For starters, musical instruments are used, although there's still one a cappella service. Also, the church has a baptistic view of baptism, and that is that baptism isn't required for salvation. He says they have a baptistic view of baptism. Basically, they're saying they believe like we do, that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. By the way, I will mention that later in the article, the reason, Lakato says the reason they did not do some of these things sooner is because people were not ready for it. He freely says that we had to wait until we got them a certain way and then we could introduce other things. One place he was speaking, I got to finish here, but he said baptism doesn't save, Jesus does. Notice how crafty that is. Who can argue with that? Baptism doesn't save, Jesus does. Well, I know that. Jesus is the Savior. I know that. But that would be about like saying the pool of Siloam doesn't give you your sight. Jesus does. The pool of Siloam doesn't give you your sight. Jesus does. I know that. Who gave that man his sight? Jesus did. Was the pool of Siloam involved? Yes. Jesus said, you go wash and you'll come back seeing. Who gave him his sight? Jesus did. What did the water have to do with it? It's what Jesus said to do. And when he did what Jesus said to do, Jesus did what he does and gave the man his sight. And so you can get to the point where you reach that final last phase. Let me just say these to you quickly. Gospel preachers need to strive for, that, for balance. We need the whole counsel. We need to be reading less books about the Bible and reading the Bible. My friend uh, Russ Bowman went into a store one time and he saw some girls in there that were friends with his girls. They were in this religious bookstore. And they said, uh, Mr. Bowman, Mr. Bowman, we're over here and we're looking at stuff about the Antichrist. And we got the, what's a good book on the Antichrist? We found some here. What, what about the Antichrist? He said, girls, he said, what you need to do is you need to go t- get those books and put them back on the shelf. And he said, you need to get this book. There's a whole chapter that a book that talks about the antichrist and it's really anything that is anti-christ anything that's different than what christ would have taught we need less desire for dynamics i love dynamics man i love it when a preacher hammers down i'm like get on boy you know hey how you go amen i love that but all if, if all you've got is a hoorah and no substance it won't help you any at all 
It won't help you. We need less desire for dynamics. And churches must insist on sound doctrine. Insist that this pulpit balances its preaching and preaches the whole counsel of Jesus Christ. Remember who you are. I hope that's helpful. I didn't preach it because I thought you necessarily needed it. I've got great confidence in the work that David does. But when I preached it at other places, they said, you need to preach that everywhere you go. And so I preach it most of the places I go. Thank you so much for your time.